Tomorrow by Eugene O'Neill. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Reading by Rowdy Delaney, Idaho, USA. Tomorrow by Eugene O'Neill. It was back in my sailor days, in the winter of my great down-and-outness, that all this happened. In those years of wandering, to be broke and on the beach, in some seaport or other of the world, was no new experience, but this had been an unusually long period of inaction even for me. Six months before I had landed in New York, after a voyage from Buenos Aires, as an able seaman on a British tramp. Since that time I had loafed around the waterfront, eking out an existence on a small allowance for my family, too lazy of body and mind, too indifferent of things in general, to ship to sea again, or do anything else. I shared a small room with another gentleman ranker, Jimmy Anderson, an old friend of mine, over an all-night dive near South Street known as Tommy the Priest's. This is the story of Jimmy, my roommate, and it began on a cold night in the early part of March. I had waited in Tommy the Priest's, hunched up in a chair near the stove in the back of the room, all the late afternoon until long after dark. My nerves were on edge as a result of two days' carouse ensuing on the receipt of my weekly allowance. Now all that money was gone, over the bar, and the next few days gleamed up as a dreary, sober and hungry ordeal which must, barring miracles, be endured patiently or otherwise. Three or four others of the crowd I knew were sitting near me, equally sick and penniless. We stared gloomily before us, in listless attitudes, spitting dejectedly at the glowing paunch of the stove. Every now and then someone would come in, bringing with him a chill of the freezing wind outside. We would all look up, hopefully. No, only a stranger. Nothing in the way of hospitality to be expected from him. Close that damn door! We would growl in chorus and huddle closer to the stove, shivering, muttering disappointed curses. In mocking contrast, the crowd at the bar was drinking, singing, arguing in each other's ears with loud, carefree voices. None of them noticed our existence. Surely a bad night for good Samaritans, I thought, and reflected with bitterness that I counted several in that jubilant throng who had eagerly accepted my favors of two nights previous. Now they saw me and nodded, but that was all. Suddenly sick with human ingratitude, I got up out of my chair, and grumbling a surly good-night to all, to the others, went out the side door and up the rickety stairs to our room, Jimmy's and mine. The thought of spending a long evening alone in the room seemed intolerable to me. I lit the lamp and glanced around angrily. A fine hole. The two beds took up nearly all the space, but Jimmy had managed to cram in, in front of the window, a small table on which stood a dilapidated typewriter. The typewriter, of course, was broken and wouldn't work. Jimmy was always going to have it fixed. Tomorrow. But then Jimmy lived in a dream of tomorrows, and nothing he ever was associated with ever worked. The lamp on the table threw a stream of light through the dirty window, revealing the fire escape outside. Inside, on a shelf along the window-sill, a dyspeptic geranium plant sulked in a small red pot. This plant was Jimmy's garden, and his joy, 
even when he was too sick to wash his own face, he never forgot to water it the first thing after getting up. It goes without saying, the silly thing never bloomed. Nothing that Jimmy loved ever bloomed, but he always hoped. In fact, he was quite sure it would eventually blossom out, in the dawn of some vague tomorrow. For me, it had value only as a symbol of Jimmy's everlasting futility, of his irritating inefficiency. However, at that period in my life, all flowers were yellow primroses, and nothing more, and Jimmy's pet was out of place, I thought, and in the way. Books were piled on the floor against the walls, and what books? Where Jimmy got them, and what for, God only knows. He never read them, except a few pages at haphazard to put him to sleep. Yet there must have been fifty at least cluttering up the room, books about history, about journalism, about economics, books of impossible poetry and incredible prose, written by unknown authors, and published by firms that no one had ever heard of. He had a craze for buying them, and never failed, on those days when he was paid for the odd bits of work he did as an occasional stenographer for a theatrical booking firm, to stagger weakly into Tommy's, very drunk, with two or three of these unreadable volumes clutched to his breast, books with titles like A Commentary on the Bulls of Pope Leo the Thirteenth, or God and the Darwinian Theory by John Jones, or Sunflowers and Other Verses by Lydia Smith think of it. I used to grow wild with rage as I watched him showing them to Tommy, or Big John, if he was on, or to anyone else who would look and listen, with all the besotted pride in the world. I would think of the drinks, and the food, kippered herring, and bread, and good Italian cheese, he might have purchased for the price of these dull works, and I would swear to myself to thrash him good and hard if he even dared to speak to me. And then— Jimmy would come and lay his idiotic books on my table, and I looked up at him furiously, and there he would stand, wavering a bit, smiling his sweet, good-natured smile, trying to force half his remaining change into my hand, his lonely, wistful eyes watching me, with the appealing look of a lost dog, hungry for an affectionate pat. What could I do but laugh and love him, and show him that I did by a slap on the back, or in some small way or another? It was worth while forgetting all the injuries in the world just to see the light of gratitude shine up in his eyes. This night I'm speaking of, I picked up one of the books in desperation and lay down to read with the lamp at the head of the bed, but I couldn't concentrate. I was too sick in body, brain, and soul to follow even the words. I threw the book aside and lay on my back staring gloomily at the ceiling. The inmate of the room next door, a broken-down telegrapher, the lunger, we used to call him, had a violent attack of coughing, which seemed to be tearing his chest to pieces. I shuddered. He used to spit blood in the back room below. In fact, when drunk he was quite proud of this achievement, but he grew terrified at all allusions to consumption, and wildly insisted that he only had bloody bronchitis, and that he was getting better every day. He died soon after in that same room next to ours. Perhaps the treatment was at fault— a quarter and a half of five-cent whiskey a day, and a plate of free soup at noon to eat is hardly a diet conducive to the cure of any disease, not even bloody bronchitis. He coughed and coughed, until, in a frenzy of tortured nerves, I yelled at him, For God's sake, shut up! Then he subsided into a series of groans and querulous, choking complaints. 
I thought of consumption, the danger of contagion, and remembered that the window ought to be open. But it was too cold. Besides, what was the difference, con or something else, today or tomorrow, it was all the same, the end. What did I care? I had failed, or rather I had never cared enough about it all to want to succeed. I must have dozed, for I came to with a nervous jump to find the lamp sputtering and smoking, and the light growing dimmer every minute. No oil. That fool Jimmy had promised to bring back some. I had given him my last twenty cents, and he had taken the can with him. He was sober, had been for almost a week, was suffering from one of his infrequent and brief efforts at reformation. No, there was no excuse. I cursed him viciously for the greatest imbecile on earth. The lamp was going out. I would have to lie in darkness, or return to the misery of the room downstairs. Just then I recognized his step on the stairs, and a moment later he came in, bringing the oil. I glared at him. "'Where have you been?' I shouted. "'Look at the lamp, you idiot. I'd have been in the dark in another second. Jimmy came forward shrinkingly, a look of deep hurt in his faded blue eyes. He murmured something about office, and stooped down to fill the lamp. "'Office?' I taunted, scornfully. "'What office? What do you take me for? I've heard that bunk of yours a million times.' Jimmy finished filling the lamp and sat down on the side of his bed opposite me. He didn't answer, only stared at me with an irritating sort of compassionate pity. How prim he was sitting there in his black suit, wispy, gray hair combed over his bald spot, his jowly face scraped close, and chalky with too much cheap powder, the vile odor of which filled the room. I noticed for the first time his clean collar, his fresh shirt. He must have been to the Chinaman's, and retrieved part of his laundry. That was what he usually did when he had a windfall of a dollar or so from some unexpected source. Never took all his laundry. That would have been too expensive. Just called at the chinks, and changed his shirt and collar. His other articles of clothing he washed himself at the sink in the hallway. I eyed him up and down resentfully. Here was a man who ought always to remain drunk. Sober, he was a respectful nuisance and his shoes were shined. Why the profound meditation, I ask? You'd think, to look at you, you were sitting up with my corpse. Cheer up. I feel bad enough without your adding to the gloom. That's just it, Art, he began in slow, doleful tones. I hate to see you in this condition. You would never feel this way if you'd only, only... He hesitated as he saw my sneer. "'Only what?' I urged. "'Only stop your hard drinking,' he mumbled, avoiding my eyes. "'This is almost too much, Jimmy. "'The water-wagon is fatal to your sense of humor. "'After a week's ride you've accumulated more cheap moralizing "'than an anchorite in all his years of fasting.' "'I'm your friend,' he blundered on. "'And you know it, Art, or I wouldn't say it. "'And it hurts you more than it does me, I'll bet.' Jimmy had the peaked air of the rebuffed but well-intentioned. If that's the way you want to take it. He was staring unhappily at the floor. We were silent for a time. Then he continued with the obstinacy of the reformed turned reformer. I'm your friend, the best friend you've got. His eyes looked up into mine. His glance was timidly questioning. You know that, don't you, Art? 
all my peevishness vanished in a flash before his woeful sincerity. I reached over and grabbed his hand, his white, pudgy little hand, so in keeping with the rest of him, warm and soft. Of course I know it, Jimmy. Don't be foolish and take what I've said seriously. I've got a full-size grouch against everything tonight. Jimmy brightened up and cleared his throat. He evidently thought my remarks an expression of willingness to serve as an audience for his temperance lecture. Still, he hesitated politely. I know you don't want to listen. I laughed shortly. Go ahead. Shoot. I'm all ears. Then he began. You know the sort of drool, introduced by a sage wag of the head, and the inevitable remark. I've been through it myself, and I know. I won't bore you with it. Coming from Jimmy, it was the last word in absurdity. I tried not to listen, concentrating my mind on the man himself, my nerves soothed by the monotonous flow of his soft-voiced syllables. Yes, he had been through it all. There was no doubt of that. From soup to nuts. What he didn't realize was that none of it had touched him deeply. Forgetful of the last kick, his eyes had always looked up again with the same appealing, timid uncertainty pleading for a caress, fearful of a blow. And life never failed to deal him the expected kick, never a vicious one, more a shove to get him out of the way of a spirited boot at someone who really mattered. Spurned, Jimmy always returned, affectionate, uncomprehending, wagging his tail ingratiatingly, so to speak. The longed-for caress would come, he was sure of it, if not today, then tomorrow. Ah, tomorrow. I looked searchingly at his face, the squat nose, the wistful eyes, the fleshy cheeks hanging down like dewlaps on either side of his weak mouth with its pale, thick lips. The usual marks of dissipation were there, but none of the scars of intense suffering. The whole effect was characterless, unfinished, as if some sculptor at the last moment had suddenly lost interest in his clay model of a face and abandoned his work in disgust. I wondered what Jimmy would do if he ever saw that face in the clear, cruel mirror of truth. Straggle on in the same lost way, no doubt, and cease to have faith in mirrors. Although most of his lecture was being lost on me, I couldn't prevent a chance word now and then from seeping into my consciousness. Wasted youth, your education, ability, a shame, lost opportunity, drink, some nice girl, these words my ears retained against my will and each word had a sting to it. Gradually my feelings of kindness toward Jimmy petered out. I began to hate him for a pestiferous little crank. What right had he to meddle with my sins? Some of the things he was saying were true, but truth, that kind of truth, should be seen and not heard. I was becoming angry enough to shrivel him up with some contemptuous remark about his hypocrisy and the doubtful duration of time he would stay on the wagon when he suddenly digressed from my misdeeds, and began virtuously holding himself up as a horrible example. He began at the beginning, and even though I welcomed the change of subject, I swore inwardly at the prospect of hearing the history of his life all over again. He had told me this tale at least fifty times while in all stages of maudlin drunkenness. Usually he wept, which was sometimes funny and sometimes not, depending upon my own condition. At all events, it would be a novelty to hear his sober version. I might get some facts this time. 
To my surprise, this story seemed to be identical with the others I had been lulled to sleep by on so many nights. Making allowances for the natural exaggeration of one in liquor, there was but little difference. It started with the Anderson estate in Scotland where Jimmy had spent his boyhood. This estate of the family extended over the greater part of a Scotch county, so Jimmy claimed, and he was touchy when anyone seemed skeptical regarding its existence. He loved to dilate on the beauty of the country, the old manor house, the farms, the game park, and all the rest of it. All this heavily mortgaged, he admitted, and he was not in good standing with most of his relatives on the other side, but he declared that there was one aunt, far gone in years, and hoarded wealth, who still treasured his memory, and he promised all the gang in the back room a rare blowout should the old lady pass away in the proper frame of mind. To all this the crowd would listen with an amiable pretense of belief. For all in all, he was Jimmy, and they all swore by him, and a fairy tale like that is no great matter to hold against a man. But here he was, spinning the same yarn in all its details. I looked at him suspiciously. No, he was certainly stone sober. Could there be any truth in it, then? Impossible. I finally concluded that Jimmy, after the fashion of liars, had ended by mistaking his own fabrications for fact. He continued on through his years in Edinburgh University, his graduation with honors, his going into journalism first in Scotland, then in England, afterwards as a correspondent on the continent, and finally his work in South Africa during the Boer War as a representative of some news service. I had never been able to verify any of this except that relating to the Boer War. An old friend of his had once told me that Jimmy did hold a responsible position in South Africa during the war, and had received a large salary. Then that old friend, old friend-like, shook his head gravely and muttered, Too bad, too bad, drink. Whether the rest of Jimmy's life, as related by him, had ever been lived or not hardly mattered, I thought. Undoubtedly he had been well educated, and what is called a gentleman over there. Of course the Anderson estate was a work of fiction, or, at best, a glorified country house. And mind you, Art, up to that time, Jimmy's story had reached the point where he was at the front in South Africa for the news service company. I never touched a drop except a glass of wine with dinner now and again. That was ten years ago, and I was thirty-five. Then something happened. Ten years, he repeated sadly, and now look where I am. He stared despondently before him for a moment, then brightened up and squared his bent shoulders. But that's all past and gone, and now I'm through with this kind of life for good and all. There's always tomorrow, I ventured ironically. Yes, and I'm going to make the most of it. His eyes were bright with the dreams of a new hope, or rather, the old hope eternally redreamed. He glanced at the table. I'll have to have that typewriter fixed up. Tomorrow? Yes, tomorrow, if I can spare the time. He hadn't noticed my sarcasm. Why, is your day all taken up? I asked, marveling at his imagination. Pretty well so. He put on an air of importance. I saw Edwards today. Edwards was a friend of his who had risen to be editor on one of the big morning papers. And he's found an opening for me, a real opening which will give me the opportunity to show them all I'm still in the race. And you start tomorrow? I was dumbfounded. Yes, in the afternoon, 
His face was alive with energy. Oh, I'll show them all, Art, that I'm still one of the best when I want to be. They've sneered at me long enough. Then you really are about to become a wage slave. I simply couldn't believe it. Honestly, Art, tomorrow, do you think I'm spoofing you about it? I must admit you seem to be confessing the shameless truth. Well, at any rate, you seem to be pleased, so here I jumped up and pumped his hand up and down. A million congratulations, Jimmy, old scout. Jimmy's joy was good to see. There were tears in his eyes as he thanked me. Good old Jimmy. It took him quite a while to get over his emotion. Then, as if he had suddenly remembered something, he began hurriedly fumbling through all his pockets. I must have lost it, he said finally, giving up the search. I wanted to show it to you. What? A letter I received today from Aunt Mary. Aunt Mary was the elderly relative in whose will Jimmy hoped to be remembered. She complains of having felt very feeble over the past half year. She appears to be entirely ignorant of my present condition, thank God. Writes that I'm to come and pay her a long visit should I decide to take a trip abroad this spring. Fancy. And you've lost the letter, I ask, trying to hide my skepticism? Yes. Was showing it to Edwards. Must have dropped on the floor. Or else he... Jimmy stopped abruptly. I think he must have sensed my amused incredulity, for he seemed very put out at something and didn't look at me. I do hope the poor old lady isn't seriously ill, he murmured after a pause. What? I laughed. Have you the face to tell me that, when you know you've been looking forward to her timely taking off ever since I've known you? Jimmy's face grew red, and he stammered confusedly. He knew he'd said such things that might have sounded that way when he'd been drinking. It was the whiskey talking, and he didn't mean it. Really, he liked her a lot. He remembered she'd been very kind to him when he was a lad. He had hardly seen her since then, twenty-five years ago. No, money or no money, he wanted her to live to be a hundred. But you've told me she's almost ninety now, isn't she? Yes, eighty-six, I think. Then, I said with finality, she's over-lingered her welcome, and you're a simpleton to be wasting your crocodile tears. In advance at that. Besides, I've never noticed her sending any of her vast fortune. She might at least have made you a present once in a while if she cared to earn any regrets over her demise. I've never written her about my hard luck. I hardly ever wrote her, Jimmy said slowly. His tones were ridiculously dismal, and he sat holding his face in his hands, in the woe-begone attitude of a mourner. Well, you should have written. A sudden thought made me smile. What will the bunch in the back room say when they hear this? You may give them that long-promised blowout. Tomorrow, I added maliciously. Jimmy stirred uneasily, and turned on me a glance full of dim suspicion. Why do you keep repeating that word tomorrow? You've said it now a dozen times. Because tomorrow is your day, Jimmy. I answered carelessly. Doesn't your career as a sober, industrious citizen begin then? Oh, he sighed with relief. I thought. He walked up and down in the narrow space between the beds, his hands deep in his pockets. Finally, he stopped and stood beside me. There was an exultant ring in his voice. Ah, I tell you, Art, it's great to feel like a man again, to know you're done for good and all with that mess downstairs. After a pause, he went on in a coaxing, motherly tone. Don't you think you ought to go to work and do something? I hate to see you like this. 
You know what a pal I am, Art. You can listen to me. It's a shame for you to let yourself go to seed this way. Really, Art, I mean it. Now, Jimmy, I got up and put my hands on his shoulders. I say it without any hard feeling, but I've had about enough of your reform movement for one night. It'll be more truly charitable of you to offer me the price of a drink, if you have it. Your day of reformation is none so remote that you can't realize from experience how rotten I feel. I can hear polar bears baying at the northern lights. Jimmy sighed disconsolately and dug some small change out of his pocket. I borrowed a dollar from Edwards, he explained. I'll pay him back out of my first salary. The self-sufficient pride he put in that word, salary. But his financial aid proved to be unnecessary. As I was about to take half his change, there was a great trampling from the stairs outside. Our door was kicked open with a bang, and Lyons, the stoker, and Patty Meehan, the old deep-water sailor, came crowding into the room. Lyons was in the first jovial frenzy of drink, but poor Patty was already awash and rapidly sinking. They had been paid off that afternoon, after a trip across on the American liner St. Paul. "'Hello, Lyons. Hello, Patty,' Jimmy and I hailed them in pleased chorus. "'Hello yourself,' Lyons crushed Jimmy's hand in one huge paw and patted me affectionately on the back with the other. The jar of it nearly knocked me off my feet, but I managed to smile. Lyons and I were old pals. I had once made a trip as a sailor on the Philadelphia, when he was in her stokehold, and we had become great friends through a chance adventure together ashore in Southampton, which is another story. He stood grinning, swaying a bit in the lamplight, a great, hard bulk of a man, dwarfing the proportions of our little room. Patty lurched over to one of the beds and fell on it. "'Thick weather! Thick weather!' he groaned to himself, and started singing an old chanty in a thin, quavering nasal whine. A roving, a roving, since roving's been my ruin, no more I'll go a roving with you, fair maid. Shut up, roared Lyons, and turned to me again. Art, how are ye? I dodged an attempt at another love tap, and replied that I was well but thirsty. Thirsty, is it? Do you hear that, Patty, ye slimy Corconian? Here's a mate complaining of thirst, and we would a full payday in our pockets. He pulled out a roll of bills and flaunted them before me with a splendid, spendthrift gesture. "'Oh, whiskey killed my old poor dad. Whiskey, oh, Johnny,' caroled Patty, dolorously. "'Listen to him,' Lyons reached out and shook him vigorously. "'That's the trouble with all them deck-scrubbers, the loike of em. They can't stand up to their drink like men. Wake up, Patty. We'll be going below.' He hauled Patty to his feet and held him there. "'Come on, Art.' There's some of the boys you know below waitin'. You'll have all the drink you can pour down your throat, and welcome, and anything more you're wishful for you've but to name. Come on, Jimmy, you're one of us. I've got something to do before I go down. I'll join you in a few minutes, Jimmy replied, wisely evading a direct refusal. See that you do, me sonny boy, warned Lyons, pushing Patty to the door. I turned to Jimmy as I was going out. Well... Good luck till tomorrow, Jimmy, if I don't see you before then. Thank you, Art, he murmured huskily, and shook my hand. I started down. From the bottom of the flight below I heard Lyon's rough curses and Patty wailing lugubriously. Old Joe is dead and gone to hell. Poor old Joe. You'll be in hell yourself if you fall in this black hole, Lyon's cautioned, 
steering him to the top of the second flight as I caught up with them. The fiesta, which began with our arrival in the bar, didn't break up until long after daylight the next morning. It was one of the old, lusty debauches of my sailor days. Songs of the sea and yarns about ships punctuated by rounds of drinks. The last I remember was Lyons bawling out for someone to come down to the docks and to strip him and to see which was the better man. Have a bit of fun with him, was the way he put it. I believe I was Dutch courageous enough to accept his challenge, but he pushed me back in my chair with a warning to be a good boy or I'd get a spanking. So the party had no fatal ending. As you can well imagine, I slept like a corpse all the next day, and didn't witness Jimmy's departure for the long, hard climb back to respectability and the man who was. When he came home that night, he appeared very elated, full of the dignity of labor, tremendously conscious of his position in life, provokingly solicitous concerning my welfare. It would have been insufferable in anyone else. But Jimmy, well, Jimmy was Jimmy, and the most lovable chap on earth. You couldn't stay mad at him for more than a minute, if you had the slightest sense of humor. Had he toiled and spun much on his first day, I asked him? No, he admitted after a moment's hesitation. He had spent the time mostly in feeling about, getting the hang of his work. Now tomorrow he'd get the typewriter fixed so he could do Sunday special stuff in his spare moments. Stories of what he'd seen in South Africa, and things of that kind. Wasn't that a bully idea? I agreed it was and retreated to the gang below who were still celebrating, leaving Jimmy with pencil poised over a blank sheet of paper, determined to map out one of his stories then and there. I didn't see him the next day or the day after. I was touring the waterfront with Lyons and Patty and never returned to the room. The fourth day of his job I ran into him for a second in the hallway. He said hello in a hurried tone and brushed past me. For my part, I was glad he didn't stop. I felt he'd immediately start on a heart-to-heart -heart talk which I was in no mood to hear. Later on I remembered his manner had been strange, and that he looked drawn and fagged out. The fifth day, Patty and Lyons were both broke, but I collected my puny allowance and we sat at a table in the back room squandering it lingeringly on enormous scoops of lager and porter which were filling and lasted a long time. We were still sitting there talking when Jimmy came back from work. He looked in from the hallway, saw us, and nodded, but went on upstairs without speaking. "'What's the matter with Jimmy?' grumbled Lyons. "'Can't he speak to a man?' "'He looks like he's sick,' said Patty. "'Go up, Art. That's a good lad. And ask him if he won't take a bit of drink, maybe.' "'I'll go,' I said, getting up. "'But he won't drink anything. Jimmy's strictly temperance these days. He's more likely to give us all a sermon on our sins.' "'Divil take him, then.' growled Lyons, but run and get him all the same. He looks like he's been drawn through a crack in the wall. I ran quickly up the stairs and opened the door to our room. Jimmy was sitting on the side of his bed, his head in his hands. I glanced at the typewriter. The keys were still gray with a layer of long accumulated dust. Benny hadn't had it fixed. The same old tomorrow, I thought to myself. Jimmy, I called to him. He jumped to his feet with a frightened start. When he saw who it was, a flush of anger came over his face. "'Why don't you scare the life out of a man?' he said irritably. I was astonished. I'd never known him to flare up like this over a trifle. "'Come down and join us for a while. You don't have to drink, you know. 
You look done up. What's the trouble? Been working too hard? He winced at this last remark as if I'd shaken my fist in his face. Then he made a frantic gesture with his arms, as though he were pushing me out of the room. Go! Go back! His voice was unnaturally shrill. Leave me alone. I want to be alone. Jimmy, I went to him in genuine alarm. What's the matter? Anything wrong? He pressed my hand and tried a feeble attempt at a smile. There were dark rings under his eyes, and, somehow, in some indefinable manner, he seemed years older, a broken man. No, Art, I'm all right. Don't mind me. I've a splitting headache. Don't be a fool and let them work you to death. He raised his hands as if he were going to clap them over his ears to shut out my words. Leave me alone, Art, will you? I'm going to bed, he stammered. Right, oh, that's the stuff. Get some sleep and you'll be okay. I went downstairs slowly, vaguely worried about him, wondering what the trouble could be. In the end, I laid his peculiar actions to the struggle he was having with his craving for drink. Patty and Lyons agreed with this opinion and called him a game little swine for sticking to his guns, and as such, we toasted him in our lager and porter. When I went up to the room to turn in, he was asleep, or pretending to be. I was careful not to disturb him. The next morning I heard him moving about, but as soon as he saw I was awake, he appeared in a nervous flurry to get away, and we didn't speak more than a few words to each other. That night he never came home at all. I went to bed early, everyone was broke, and there was nothing else to do, and when I was aroused out of my slumber by the sun shining on my face through the dirty window, I saw that his bed hadn't been touched. A somber presentment of evil seemed to hover around that bed. The white spread, threadbare and full of holes which he had tucked in with such precise neatness, had the suggestion of a shroud about it, a shroud symbolically woven for one whose life had been threadbare and full of holes. I tried to laugh at such grim imaginings. Jimmy had stayed with Edwards, or someone else from his paper. What was strange in that? This wasn't the first time he'd remained away all night, was it? If I was to give way to such worries, I might just as well put on skirts and be done with it. But my phantoms, however foolish, refused to be laid. I got dressed in a hurry, anxious to escape from this room, bright with sunlight, dark with uncanny threat. Before I went down, struck by a sentimental mood, I got some water from the sink in the hallway and poured it on his ridiculous geranium plant. After a breakfast of soup, I walked with Patty and Lyons down to the battery. We spent the afternoon there, lounging on one of the beaches. It was a warm day in spring, and we sat blinking at the sunshine, drowsily listening to each other's yarns about the sea and lazily watching the passing ships. When the sun went down, we returned to Tommy the Priest's. On the way back, I remembered this was Jimmy's payday and wondered if he would show up. He owed me some money which I hoped would be forthcoming. Otherwise, the night was liable to prove an uneventful one. And a farewell bust up was imperative, because Patty and Lyons would be going on board ship the following day if they wanted to make the next trip. The evening didn't pass off as dully as we had feared. Old MacDonald, the printer, was in a festive mood and invited us to join him. Two of the telegraph operators, out of a job at that time, had borrowed some money somewhere and were anxious to return the many treats they had received from us in the past. So the time whiled away very pleasantly. It was shortly after midnight when Jimmy came in. 
As soon as I saw his face I knew that something had happened to him, something very serious. He was incredibly haggard and pale, and there were deep lines of suffering about his mouth and eyes. His eyes, I can't describe them. There was nothing behind them. He nodded and took his place at the bar beside us. Then he spoke, asked us what we'd have in a strained, forced voice, as though it cost him a tremendous effort to talk. He took whiskey himself, poured out the glass brim full, and downed it straight. Big John changed a bill for him, and without looking at me, he held out the couple of dollars he owed me. I put them in my pocket. Jimmy motioned to Big John and called for another round. A spell of silence was on the whole barroom. Everyone there knew him well. They had all joked with him during the week about his being on the wagon, but had secretly admired his firmness of will. Now they stared at him with genuine regret that he should have fallen. Their faces grew sad. They had done the same thing themselves so many times. They understood. Jimmy? He caught the reproach in my voice and turned to me with a twisted smile. It doesn't matter, he said. Nothing matters. His voice became harsh. Don't forget what you said about my lectures and start in yourself. He immediately felt sorry for having said this. No, Art, I didn't mean that. Never mind what I say. I'm upset about something. Tell me what it is, Jimmy. Maybe I can help. Help? He laughed hysterically. No, no help, please. After all, why shouldn't I tell you? You're bound to find out sooner or later. They'll all know it. He indicated the others who, feeling that Jimmy wanted to be alone with me, had taken their drinks to the table at the rear and were sitting around talking in low, constrained voices. Jimmy blurted out, My job, Art, is gone to hell. What? I pretended more astonishment than I felt. I had guessed that was the trouble. Yes, they asked me to quit. Politely requested. Edwards was very nice about it, very kind, very charitable. He put all the bitterness of his heart into these last words. The rotten swine. Oh, no, Art, it wasn't his fault. If they hadn't fired me, I'd have had to resign anyway. I, I couldn't do the work. That's all nonsense, Jimmy. Well, cheer up. All said and done, it's only a job the less. You can always get another for the asking. He looked at me with a sort of wild scorn in his eyes. Can't you understand any better than that? What do I care for the job itself? It isn't that. I tell you, I couldn't do the work. I tried and tried. What I wrote was rot. I couldn't get any news. No initiative, no imagination, no character, no courage. All gone. Nothing left. Not even cleverness. No memory, even. He stopped, breathing hard, the perspiration glistening on his forehead. It came to me gradually, the realization. I couldn't believe it. I had been so sure of myself all these years. All I needed was a chance. It had been so easy for me in the past, long ago. These last few days I've guessed the truth. I've been going crazy. Last night I walked, walked and walked, thinking, and finally, I knew. He paused, choking back a sob his face twitching convulsively with the effort he made to control himself. Then he uttered a cracked sound intended for a laugh. I'm done. Burnt out. Wasted. It's time to dump the garbage. Nothing here. He tapped his head with a silly gesture and laughed again. 
I began to be afraid he really was going mad. No, Art, it isn't the job that's lost. I'm lost. Now you're talking like a fool, I spoke roughly, trying to shake him out of this mood. I won't talk any more, he said quite calmly. Don't worry. I'm all shot to pieces. No sleep. He broke down and suddenly turned away from me. But it's hell, Art, to realize all at once. You're dead. I put my arm around his shoulders. Have a drink, Jimmy. Hey, you, John, a little service. What else was there to do? Life had jammed the clear, cruel mirror in front of his eyes, and he had recognized himself in that pitiful thing he saw. Have a drink, Jimmy, and forget it. Take a real drink, I urged. What else was there to do? After we had had a couple at the bar, Jimmy filling his glass to the brim each time, I led him back, and we sat down at the table with the crowd. More drinks were immediately forthcoming, and it wasn't long before Jimmy was very drunk. He didn't say anything, but his eyes glazed, his lips drooped loosely, his head wagged uncertainly from side to side. I saw he had had enough, and I hoped his tired brain had been numbed to a forgetful oblivion. Come on to bed, Jimmy. I shook him by the arm. He stared at me vacantly. Bed, yes, sleep, sleep, he mumbled, and came with me willing enough. I helped him up the stairs to the room and lit the lamp. He sat on the side of the bed, swaying, unlacing his shoes with difficulty. Presently he began to weep softly to himself. It's you, Alice. Cause of all this. Damn you. No. Didn't mean that. Beg pardon. He muttered. He lifted his head and saw me sitting on the other bed. One word of advice, Art. Never get married. All rotten. All of them. This was something new. What do you know about marriage? I asked curiously. Nothing from experience, surely. He winked at me with drunken cunning. Don't I, though? Not half. Never told you that. What? Never told you what happened. Cape Town? No. You never did. What was it? Might's well tell, Art. Best friend. Tell you everything tonight. All over. Yes. Married in England. English girl. Pretty's picture. Big blue eyes. Just before war. Took her South Africa with me. And left her in Cape Town when I went to front. I was called back to Cape Town suddenly. Found her with staff officer. Dirty swine. No chance for doubt. Didn't expect me to turn up. Saw him with my own eyes. Flagrante delicto, you know. Dirty swine of a staff officer. Goodbye, Jimmy Anderson. All over. Drink, drink, forget. He blubbered to himself, his face a grotesque mask of tragedy. In a flash, it came back to me. How he'd always stopped in the stories of his life at the point where he'd commenced drinking. Even at his drunkest, he'd always ended the history there by saying abruptly, and then something happened. I'd never attached much importance to it. Thought he merely wanted to suggest a mysterious reason as an excuse for his tobogganing. Now I knew. Who could doubt the truth of his statements, knowing all he had been through that day? He was in a mood for truth. So this was something which happened. Here was a real tragedy. Real tragedy. And there he was, sobbing, hiccuping, rolling his eyes stupidly, scratching with limp fingers at tears which ran down and tickled the sides of his nose. 
I felt a mad desire to laugh. I suppose you and she were divorced, I asked after a pause. No, I couldn't. No proof. No money. Besides, what'd I care about divorce? Never want to marry again. Never love anyone else. He wept more violently than ever. But didn't she get a divorce? No, she's too cute for that. Thinks Aunt Mary'll leave me money, and I'll drink myself to death. No, he interrupted himself hastily. Can't be that. Not spad as that. Not Alice. No, no, mustn't say that. Not right for me to say that. Don't know her reason. Never can tell about women. Damn shoes. He gave up his attempt to get his shoes off and flung himself on the bed, fully dressed. In a minute he was dead to the world and snoring. I left him and went downstairs. Most of the people in the back room were asleep, but Patty and Lyons and the operators were still drinking at one table, and I sat down with them. I talked at random on every subject that came up, seeking to forget Jimmy and his woes for a time at least. His two confessions that night had got on my nerves. Later I must have dozed, for I was jolted out of a half dream by a sharp cracking smash in the back yard. Everyone was awake and cursing in an instant. Big John appeared from behind the curtain, grumbling. Dot's right. Leave bottle on the fire escape, you fellers. Dot's right. And I have to sweep it up. We heard someone racing down the stairs, and Jimmy burst into the room. His face was livid, his eyes popping out of his head. He rushed to the chair beside me and sat down, shaking, his teeth chattering as if he had a chill. I told Big John to bring him a drink. What's the trouble now, Jimmy? I asked when he had calmed down a little. He appeared to be quite sober after his sleep. The geranium, he began, his lips trembling, his eyes filling up. So that's what fell down just now, is it? Yes. I woke up and remembered I'd forgotten to water it. I got up and went to get the water. The window was open. I must have stumbled or something. I put out my hand to steady myself. It was so dark I couldn't see. I knocked it out onto the fire escape. Then I heard it crash in the yard. He put his hands over his face and cried heartbrokenly like a sick child whose only remaining toy has been smashed. Not drunken tears this time, but real tears which made all of us at the table blink our eyes and swear fiercely at nothing. After a while he grew quiet again, attempted to smile, ask our pardons for having created a foolish scene. He stared at his drink, standing untouched on the table in front of him, but he never made any motion to take it, didn't seem to realize what it was. For fully fifteen minutes he sat and stared, as still as a stone, never moving his eyes, never even seeming to breathe. Then he got up from his chair and walked slowly to the door like a man in a trance. As he was going out, he turned to me and said, I'm tired, Art. I think I'll go to sleep. And something like a wan smile trembled on his pale lips. He left the door open behind him, and I heard him climbing the stairs, and the slam of our door as he closed it behind him. A buzz of conversation broke out, as if his going had lifted a weight of silence off the room full of men. Then it happened. A swish, a sickish thud, as of a heavy rock dropping into thick mud. We looked wildly at one another. We knew. We rushed into the hall and out into the yard. There it was, a motionless, dark huddle of clothes, a splintered, protruding bone or two, 
a widening pool of blood black against the gray flags. Jimmy. The sky was pale with the light of dawn. Tomorrow had come. The End of Tomorrow by Eugene O'Neill Read by Rowdy Delaney, Idaho, USA